I'm Bob Custer, host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with Daniel Levin, author of Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. A call that came into his office with an urgent, cryptic request to meet in Paris led Daniel Levin on a journey to find a young man gone missing in Syria. So begins a suspenseful, shocking, and at times brutal true story of one man's search to find this missing person in Syria over 20 tense days. In his latest book, Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East, Daniel Levin dives deep into a shadowy world where few have access. An underground industry of war where everything is for sale, including arms, drugs, and even people. Daniel Levin has spent the last 20 years working with governments and development institutions worldwide. A lawyer by profession, he is an advisor on political and economic affairs from financial development to conflict resolution. Daniel Levin is also the author of Nothing But a Circus, Misadventures Among the Powerful. Daniel Levin, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate being there. So let's begin with your work with Project Bystore and the European Foundation that you worked for at the time. As I understand it, your experience there is one of the reasons you were asked by your friend Hubie to find this missing young man, Paul, in Syria. That's correct. This is a foundation set up in Europe. It's a charitable foundation for the purpose of identifying next-generation uh, candidates and potential leaders is mainly in conflict zones and taking them out of their country and training them and preparing them in anything from legislation to education reform, healthcare reform, and uh, writing new constitutions. So that was the context for the work in Syria. Uh, Foundation is currently active in several conflict zones too, including in the Middle East. Uh, but after the beginning of the civil war, in Syria in 2011, we were asked in 2012 and 13 to see whether we can use this form of initiative to help mediate the war. The idea being that we would take a few young men and women from the different warring fractions and uh, try to get them to work together so that when the killing stops, there will be a basis to start rebuilding. That sounds obviously, you know, very quaint in hindsight, given how the war is taken. But don't forget, this is all happening prior to the Russian intervention, which really tipped the war in favor of the regime. So at the time, the regime was on the ropes, and they had an incentive uh, to do this. And this is before this conflict metastasized into what it is today and has been for the last few years. This is prior to chemical attacks and so on. So at the time, this was a, a really hopeful initiative. We, under, we ended up getting undermined primarily by, by uh, some of the individuals affiliated with the regime, but that was the context uh, in which I was asked in, in uh, several cases to see if I could help with uh, finding information on, on um, missing hostages and Westerners. Uh, and this, this particular request at the end of 2014 was just one of those requests. Mm -hmm. So how much did you know about Paul? Why was he in the region? Uh, what would have caused him, uh, first of all, to go into Syria? And why would he have gone missing? Uh, what I learned uh, initially and then found out more in the course of these 20 days uh, is Paul is not that untypical. It may be surprising for us sitting outside looking at, the, at these war zones because we don't know who would voluntarily go there. But there are quite a few people uh, who march into Syria because they're seeking some kind of an adventure or purpose to their life. These can be 
uh, freelance journalists who may not have had the the professional success they want, and they think that reporting from the war uh, may be a way to uh, make a mark and lead to some kind of a employment with a major newspaper or TV program. Uh, it may be aid workers. A lot of people, obviously, with a very kind heart, trying to make a difference or report what's happening there or help the victims. But they are uh, really completely unprepared for the violence, the visceral violence, and also the senseless violence. I've dealt with a few people, also people who ended up not going missing that we still had to extricate, who went into their thinking, look, we're not opposed or in favor of any one side. We're just trying to mitigate all the suffering and pain. Who could possibly have a problem with me doing it? And of course, those are the tragedies of this war is that this violence is completely senseless. And if it makes any sense, it's because there's so much money to be made by the violence there. One of the points you make in your book is that uh, you were fortunate enough to have a Palestinian teacher who taught you the rich variety of Arab dialects. Can I assume that your ability, your facility with languages, Arab dialects in particular, uh, was one of the reasons why you could even pull this off? I think there were more than one moment in the book when uh, you switch from English to Arabic, and it sounds like you were doing it just to let them know, uh, I understand you guys more than you think I do. I mean, I, it would be easy to say, yeah, it obviously helped. And of course, understanding language or being able to adjust to your surroundings helps. I think there there is an alternative way to do this, which is to say, I only speak English and force people to adjust to you. And there are situations, especially in a in a hostage type situation where you have a, a tactical advantage of forcing people out of their comfort zone to force. So there were, there are moments where I don't say tell someone that I understand them or can speak to them in their language, but I'll force them to speak in English just because it, it just gives me a little more leverage or sometimes it gives me a little more time to ponder my response to what they're saying because it takes them a little longer to express themselves. So uh, it, it can work in all ways, but generally, of course, it helps. But you know, the, the language ability is just a result of the life I've led. You know, I was born in Israel and grew up in Kenya as a little boy in the 60s. My dad was a diplomat. And uh, one of the languages I learned in Kenya just as a little boy was Kikuyu, which is uh, Swahili and Kikuyu. And Swahili in particular is is a language that is full of Arabic elements. I mean, my sister who was born there, her name is Malaika, Malaika, Malika, very similar in Arabic and in Swahili means my angel. So the, the, for me, it's a little bit like coming home. It wasn't really that hard. I was grateful to my teacher because she sensitized me to just different pronunciations, the way things were said in in the Gulf versus Egyptian classical Arabic or or the Middle Eastern Levant type of Arabic. So it definitely helped, but I wouldn't overstate it. It, it helped mainly to keep me safe because I could understand people without them knowing that I understood them more than anything else. Before we get into the to the book itself, I do want to comment on something you mentioned at the beginning of the book, which I think is very important. Uh, you distinguish between two sets of people you're going to identify in this real-life drama, those whose names are real and those whose names are pseudonyms. Uh, Paul, who I mentioned, is one of those names that's a pseudonym to protect the family. Was that difficult, uh, separating those two groups out, deciding uh, who would require protection and who you could talk about uh, publicly with real names? I had to ask everybody uh, who, whom I cared about, meaning anyone who I considered on the right side of this conflict, uh, to, on the human side of this conflict, whether it was okay to use their name. So, for example, the person who helped me greatly, without whom I never would have been able to do any of this, is Khalid al-Mari, uh, who is Saudi-born. 
and he, his, that's his real name. He agreed for it to be mentioned. I had to go to everyone and ask that. And in the case of Paul, the actual person who went missing, uh, it, it was a condition that I would anonymize the name. And I don't want to give any spoilers and the reasons for that condition, but of course I would respect that. There were also people I just couldn't mention at all. Uh, there are military people. There were people I knew back from my uh, military service in Israel whom I couldn't mention who helped me here. So, so this book is, there are obviously certain things I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't state in here. So it goes beyond just having a pseudonym. The one thing I did insist and had this conversation with my publisher and we all agreed is I would, not use any pseudonym for any perpetrator, whether those are militia members, members of uh, the regime, people who are corrupt, who make money in this, drug dealers that, that are discussed. Those are all their real names. And, and for me, it was important to out them in that respect. So that's the major distinction that I'm making, which is I didn't ask for permission for anyone I consider a perpetrator, you know, including head of the Syrian intelligence, who still today is playing some cruel game when he negotiates with uh, his partners in the West. So uh, I, I did not hold back there. But of course, with victims and people who helped, I had to ask them whether it was okay. And many said I could mention it, but they asked me to change their name. One of the most interesting things that comes up more than once in your book is what I would call the reciprocity of these relationships. Uh, it seems as though you were successful because you, you knew how to play some of these reciprocities against one another. Uh, the best example I can think of is Halid, who you just mentioned. Uh, he was instrumental in your search, but as it turns out, he was instrumental in your search because you had been instrumental at one point in his life. I wonder if you could share with us uh, what that was that deepened the trust and confidence he had in you and therefore uh, allowed you to benefit from his skills and knowledge. You know, if you take a step back, I think that most human relationships also contain a vested interest. That's not a cynical statement. There's obviously something that you seek from another person. It can be love and affection. It can be a transactional benefit. So and not everything is, uh, I'm not trying to I'd, make it an ideal or romanticize any of it, but there, you have to... To, to do a job like this, you certainly have to realize what someone expects out of something if you're asking them for help. Uh, we say the word favor, that seems to imply that they're doing something for nothing. That is extremely rare. There are a few, but there's someone has some benefit in this. Uh, and, and that can range. That can be from monetary benefit, which I was not in a position to to uh, provide, or it can be from a relationship benefit or from a different favor that would come down the road where someone would want different kinds of information uh, or to be mentioned favorably in a different kind of context. But if you're going into a, a zone such as uh, Syria or the, the, the countries that I had to travel to to chase for this information, I'm encountering people who owe me nothing people who are often hostile towards me or at the very least neutral and owe me absolutely nothing. So if I'm going to try and get information from them and I can't just hand them over cash, I have to figure out what it is that they need or if, in, if I'm lucky enough and have some form of leverage over them, which is that I have damning information on them that I can promise not to release in return, uh, maybe that. But without mapping that out tactically at every step in these discussions, there's virtually no chance 
of stepping into this kind of a minefield, uh, literally and figuratively, and and successfully extracting a person or even just getting information from them. That that would be an illusion. That's different if you are a superpower and you have military power. Even then, you need to understand the the, the individual needs and and interests of the people you're dealing with. But you obviously have the leverage of force and power. I'm not going into this area with that kind of leverage whatsoever. So I have to figure out, you know, the small little chips. But but that's no different in other kinds of relationships in our professional life and in much of our social interactions. The people have some kind of interest and life gets a lot easier when we can figure out what they want and figure out whether that's a bargain that's uh, that's one that we can live with or not. You're listening to Daniel Levin. He's the author of Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. Another fellow who helped you out quite a bit was Jamil, and uh, this is in the context of meeting up with the Sheikh. And I found your encounter with the Sheikh to be particularly revealing insights into the Arab thinking, at least the Arab thinking of this one man, but I have uh, pretty confident that uh, this is thinking that uh, is prevalent across the the Middle East among Arabs. Uh, I wonder, first of all, if you could tell us what uh, advice Jamil gave you when it comes to uh, the fact that you're Jewish, <laughs> and then and then perhaps uh, you could share with us uh, a number of the the points that the Sheikh made, uh, especially the most interesting one about what makes America strong as opposed to what makes the Middle East weak, as far as he's concerned. Yeah, thank you I, for the question. It's a great question. The uh the main advice that he gave me about my own identity was not to hide it, that there was uh, there was something about people who feel apologetic or hide their own identity uh, that they he found unappealing and that he knew that the sheikh, who is a very prominent figure uh, that I had to promise not to name, but if you can read the footnotes carefully in the book, you can extrapolate very fairly easily uh and and what his point there was don't essentially play the player in other words you are who you are don't assume that we wouldn't figure that out and if you then try to hide it or are embarrassed by it in any way uh it will trigger that kind of contempt that this conversation would end right away uh it was smart advice he was absolutely right and then in the ensuing conversation with the sheikh he proved to be absolutely right. It was clear to me how absurd it would have even been to try to do it. Then I wasn't inclined to hide my identity in that respect. Um, the conversation with the Sheikh was really a fascinating one, and it, it meandered in part. I think I, felt I was being tested before, you know, at the end of long, long hours of a long night in Beirut, he finally directed me back to Jamil, who took me to the next station. So it was an unnecessary conversation for the purpose of getting information. It was necessary for the purpose of them deciding whether they wanted to help me. And his his uh, discussions on America and also Israel were really fascinating. And the thing that he said, and, and I think you're asking about, is that he was worried about America and perceived America as a threat, not because of its might, but because of its diversity. And, you know, I'm, this is happening in 2014, uh, before the, uh, you know, just increased, tribalism, animosity of the last few years, which we don't have to get into in this call, but it does seem like a long, long time ago when an outside religious political leader who's on its face very hostile to America says that the party fears the most is its diversity being a model because he says if 
people really diverse and embrace diverse societies, if they can accept and embrace diverse societies, pardon me, uh, obviously his raison d'etre as a warlord essentially falls away because they need those uh, those frictions in societies to thrive. Uh, I don't have to spend too much time explaining what kind of a lesson we can draw for that for our country today, of course. Mm-hmm. Another of your helpers, Jamil, hit on what I think he called, or maybe use your words, but American hypocrisy in the way the CIA overlooks war criminals if it helps them solve a particular missing missing person case. Uh, first of all, do I have that right? And secondly, I guess uh, you spend a lot of time over there. Does he have that right? Well, I think there was, uh, you know, we go through this a lot, and you saw it also in not just in Syria, but in other countries, which is that we, you see it in the discussions with Iran now also, is that we uh, we put people on sanctions lists for all kinds of reasons. They're terrorists or fund terrorists or political leaders uh, in whose name terror attacks are being carried out. Uh, but then it so happens that when a person, let's say, goes missing in that country or or the person who's sanctioned could help, we still try to engage with them. And so there's this cruel game that happens. We, we I think, as, uh, as on the American side, think that we can play this. In other words, we'll go to the head of Syrian intelligence and say, we'd really appreciate your help if you can help us find this missing person. Uh, but this is a person who's sanctioned, uh, sanctioned, and not just, by the way, by the U.S., but by the European Union, by the United Nations, and so on. And and so you start to go into the staged kind of theater where he gets a little halo above his head and says, of course, I'm going to do everything I can. And then in Arabic says to his friends something really dismissive about these f- funny Americans who think that they can slap me with their right hand and then try to caress me with their left hand. You have all those kinds of scenarios. So Jamil pointed it out and others pointed out in the course of the story, which is that um, it becomes, of course, very, very difficult if you're trying to uh, officially engage with people that you're sanctioned, uh, even in consider war criminals in many, many cases, rightly so, uh, but then need their assistance. Uh, so war becomes really messy. And generally, the less posturing and grandstanding there is, the more effective you can be in trying to help some people on the ground. But But don't forget, it's in part why also governments are almost resentful when citizens just march into a war zone and go missing because they have to spend so much capital in every respect, capital, political, sometimes financial, military, uh, in order to help extricate that person. And it's an unbelievably painful experience because you feel suddenly squeezed and indebted to people whom you despise. And so, you know, that plays out in, in such cynical ways. It's really quite horrific. Jamil made many mentions to that. Well, after meeting up with a number of people, you finally do meet the man who can give you the information you need. And you are warned more than once about this guy. I, I'm just going to turn you loose at this point and let you explain who this gentleman is. Gentleman's the wrong word in this case, excuse me for that. And just what he was up to in the Middle East and Syria in particular. Hey, this person uh, is Syrian national and he, you know he, he was the kind of caricature that I almost felt as an author. I almost had to tone it down because it felt almost too much like a caricature. But that's exactly how I experienced it. He ultimately ended up catching up with him in Dubai. And he was just one of those warlords who became immensely rich in the war. He was involved in drug manufacturing, mainly Captagon, this amphetamine that is now creating a 
a real pandemic, not just like coronavirus, a real pandemic throughout the Gulf and some European countries. It's this really insidious amphetamine that gets sold in blister packs, so it actually looks like ADD medication. Uh, he traded in human beings. He traded in weapons. He controlled all the distribution routes. He took little girls from, I mean, sometimes 10 years old from villages in Syria and sold them into sex slavery in the, in the Gulf. Uh, I mean, he, he embodied everything that you would just find is there's no redeeming quality to this, to this human being. And, and on top of everything, his appearance was almost clownish. He, he was, uh, he was a person who, had worked out with steroids. He was enormous. His arms were bigger than my leg. Even though I'm hearing myself describe it, uh, you hear what kind of a caricature he was. And he had, in fact, this kind of a roid rage, this, this steroid filled rage. He, he was really just an abhorrent person. But what made it so fascinating is in the process of really just despising it. And, and I, as you say, I was really warned about him. I was warned by, by some of his victims. I was warned by his ex-wife. I knew what I was getting into there. But what made it so fascinating is that not perhaps even despite, but rather because of his evil nature, he understood the war and its economy and what kept it alive better than others because he profited so astronomically from it. And for him, there was no ideology. He didn't care about religion. He didn't care about party affiliation, nationality. For him, it was just a way to enrich himself. And he was truly evil, evil person by, by any standard. I'm not trying to moralize this. I just, you can't find a redeeming quality. But when you are in the process of trying to get this information about a person who went missing, that's who you end up talking to sometimes. Uh, you're not sitting, you know, in a public library in Switzerland, having a nice cup of tea, having conversation. It gets messy. And uh, if, uh, if that's too messy for a person, then they're not going to be successful in this kind of, a, in this kind of an engagement. I'm Bob Custer, host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with Daniel Levin, author of Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. In the book, Levin dives deep into the shadowy underground industry of war where everything is for sale, including arms, drugs, and even people. You alluded to the, to the sex slavery that this uh, guy was involved in, and it reminds me of Reem, uh, the young woman who you met and who you talked to about uh, her and her sister's travails. And I wonder if you could share with our listeners that brief encounter, that story of them. And also, let's talk about how this turned out for them. We're not going to talk about the missing person. Uh, I'm going to save that for the, the readers. But um, I thought the story of Reem was uh, quite interesting and has a humanitarian end to it. Okay. Reem and her sister are encountered in the last days of the book in Dubai. I had to go to a bar called Jules Bar, uh, not too far actually from the airport in Dubai, which is essentially a prostitution hub. Uh, it's where pimps uh, expect their prostitutes to stay and, uh, and connect with people who want to rent their services. And uh, I was told that that would be a place that I could find this, this guy called Anas his real name. And uh, as I walked in there, the first thing that happened to me was that someone was dragging a young girl who, uh, I mean, she, she was 15 at the time. I didn't know that she looked really young, was dragging her by her hair over, through the floor. And she was screaming in agony and ended up in a fight with this person. Uh, and 
walked away afterwards out of the bar because the the Anas I was the guy I was looking for wasn't there. And then her sister Reem, who was seventeen at the time, ran up to me to thank me, and we ended up talking. And um, she was the one who actually found a way to connect me to Anas. But she told me her story of how she and her sister had been taken from a town in Syria and brought to Dubai and the things she had experienced and the kinds of horrors that someone tells it to you, you, you can never unremember it. You you can never unremember it. It's just the things that are just completely unimaginable, the kind of evil that, that you think of when, when people tell you about what they experienced in concentration camps in the second world war, just unimaginable evil. And in the end, Reem and her sister, they're both very much in my life still today where uh, two people I was able to help with others who did way more than I did in this process to get out. And Reem today, you know, she moved to Western Europe, has a new identity and just finished her law studies. So, you know, there's that unbelievable hope that, that fills you. And I hope also the reader where you go through this throughout all the darkness and the pain uh, where I want a reader to understand what these wars really look like for those on the inside where there is also hope. And that's perhaps the most we can do, but we can do that, which is help those individuals. I don't have the ability to end this war, but there are some you can help and, and we can do something with together with others. And uh, Reem and her sister are that. And, and I, I can't tell you how proud I am of her today. I mean, she's it's just this new life that she's built up and to be able to survive the trauma that she and her sister survived and emerge that way is just unbelievable and inspiring. Well, in your book, you're, you're quite modest because I was going to ask you the question. It was very clear to me that you must have had something to do with these two young ladies leaving Syria and getting into Europe, and it's obvious that you did, and boy, uh, there's a... But my role in their case was marginal. It really was. It was just in the very early parts of it. I stayed in very much in touch with them. They're in my life today. They feel like family. Uh, Reem today is 25 years old. You know, this is, it's, and her younger sister is, is the age of my daughter, 22. She's 21 and a half, her younger sister. So you can really relate to that. And throughout this process, I couldn't stop thinking of my own kids. Just the, the, the gap is so, unbelievable. But my role really was a modest role with respect to Reem and Samar, to a younger sister. It really was. It, I would, it would be absolutely wrong of me to overstate that. It was just in the very initial parts of it because those, those were the days I was involved. But others have, have played an unbelievable role in helping them and helping them get out and hosting them and giving them new identities. I mean, there's a whole process that was triggered over years following these events in late 2014. And, and I had very little to do in that. My next question stems from the fact that we watch the news in the evening or hear it on the radio or, or on our computer, and we really are, are so removed from the effects of war. And I'd like you to describe the young man, Safe, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, who you met, I believe, in a, you were in the back seat of a car, he was in the front seat in the, on the passenger side, and also, what's amazing about this story is um, the fact that he's adopted, so to speak, by, by people who really are wonderful, caring folks who now become his parents. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, I, uh, this was uh, at the end of my visit to Amman in, in Jordan. I had to actually kind of make a run for it to get to Dubai in time. And uh, uh, there was a, through my friend Khalid, he had arranged for a... Jordanian security officer, police officer, to help me both get into the country, get out of the country efficiently and easily at the airport. 
And when this person picked me up uh, at the hotel to take me to the airport, when I left for Dubai, he had a person in the front seat of the car and he, he just asked me not to be too shocked when I saw him. I only saw the back of his head and it looked burnt, but I couldn't see it. And only when he turned around and muttered something I couldn't even understand. It was purely gutter. Well, this was a person completely disfigured by the most horrific burns and, and explosions. And he and his sister had been in the car when their, their, was hit by mortar and their parents were uh, instantly killed, decapitated in front of their eyes, completely traumatized, the kind of thing you can't even imagine, uh, ended up being in a refugee camp in northern Jordan uh, that today is really like a city. People just can't even follow the, the type of misery that exists there. It's, it's really grown from a refugee camp to almost a permanent slum. And uh, this Jordanian policeman uh, was married to someone who couldn't have children, desperately wanted it. And when she went to visit the refugee camp with him, she spotted this young man and instantly said, I want him. And, you know, I almost mm. choke up when I tell the story again, because it's it's such an unbelievable story. It's It's so powerful. And they ended up to change their lives completely. But when you interact with this person, his disfiguring was, it was his disfigurations were so powerful, almost violent that you, you know, you can't look at it and you can't look away. You don't know whether you can talk to him, whether he can hear you. Half the face was missing. One ear was missing. You want to shake his hand and his fingers are the ones that he has left are completely curved because the skin and the burn just contracted. And so it looks like he's pointing sideways ahead away from his body. So it's the kind of uh, impression again, that you can never unsee again. You just can't unsee it, but it was so inspiring also to see out of all this pain, to see this Jordanian couple just try to help this horrific war victim and, and one out of so many have some semblance of a life. And we can't even ever imagine the kind of agony, not only that this young man went through, but continues to go through. The, the Jordanian uh, policeman was telling me that he would wake up night, every night screaming like an animal being slaughtered, there's guttural sounds he couldn't even imagine. So you experience these things. And as he was telling me about it, you know, it's, it's, it's not our thought that we can't envisage a war that we're not personally experiencing because no one's ever prepared for this. The victims are also never prepared for it. But when you are exposed to this, uh, those are impressions that never leave you. And I'm not trying to scare away the reader, but I want the reader in the course of this story uh, where there's also some hope uh, at its end, but at, at, in the course of the story to just understand how vicious and how violent and how senseless these wars really are. When we talk about troops withdrawals or starting a war or ending a war, we talk about them like they're chess games or like they're board games or video games. We just theoretically understand the pain involved, but uh, you can't really appreciate it until uh, you're really in it. What are your thoughts on the Syria of today and, and its future? Uh, Anas, uh, the warlord Anas, gave his thoughts and it was a pretty dire prediction of a war that just goes on and on and on. And he even criticizes the United Nations. Maybe, maybe he didn't criticize it, but he points out that the United Nations in Syria is even clueless as to how they might be being played as suckers in the active weapons trading market. Uh, perhaps you can comment on that. Uh, I think that what is clear, and it's clear from, you know, evil people like Anas, but also good people like Khalid, is that 
First of all, this war is not over. I know the conventional wisdom and narrative is that Assad kind of won the war because Russia and Iran helped him win the war. Uh, and therefore the war is kind of over, but the, the slaughtering is continuing. It's continuing at the same pace. It's, it's unimaginable, the slaughtering that's continuing, whether you, you call it gratuitous in a way, but what is clear and what I've emerged with very much feeling, uh, and being convinced of is that the war and the killing doesn't end if the war economy is still alive. If there's still so much money to be made from the people's trades, from the weapons trades, from the drug trade, uh, and it's not just hostages. It's again, it's young children being sold into slavery. It's manufacturing amphetamines that are creating an amphetamine pandemic uh, in big parts of the Middle East and Southern Europe and Northern Africa. Uh, they've made their way to uh, their uses amphetamines by fighters in Libya today, you know. So um, as long as this war economy stays that way and there's no effort made by outside powers and also by financial institutions not to legitimize those profits, not to incorporate them into their banking systems, for example, uh, as long as that remains the same, then the war can continue for a long time. Uh, they're not going to run out of victims. The country is already completely devastated. And at some point, there will be some financial incentives in rebuilding certain parts of it. But right now, what provides the highest financial incentives is the actual economy, such as the drug trade itself. And if you look at war zones all over the world, you have war zones that have been war zones for decades, in many cases, fueled by similar kinds of war economies, like, like the drug trade. So it's not about just being cynical, it's just being realistic about it, unless there was a real effort by outside parties, and in particular, I'm thinking, of course, of the permanent members of the Security Council, US, Russia, China, in particular, uh, to end this, that's not the case. But the incentives are still working in the other way. Just yesterday, the uh, Kremlin-sanctioned mercenary group, the Wagner Group, signed oil agreements in the western coast of Syria, in Tartus and Latakia, which is controlled by the regime. So they have a strong incentive. These are the same mercenaries who fight in Libya also, on behalf of the warlord Khalifa Haftar there. So you see the same patterns emerge. And as long as that's the case, these wars don't end. And then you have to look at uh, multilateral institutions such as the United Nations and say, well, if you can't play a role in that, in ending it and providing a meaningful platform, if it's just a security council where the permanent powers do nothing other than veto each other's resolutions, then what exactly is the point? And if you can't distribute medicine or food or blankets or water without it being entirely taken over by the well-connected just for, again, astronomical profits, then what exactly is the purpose? And this is not some polemic against the United Nations, it's just that we have to look at these things by what they really are, not by what we'd like them to be, and then recalibrate it. Then if we believe we have an obligation to end these wars, we have to start thinking how we can do that in an effective way. I think hosting multilateral talks in Vienna or Geneva the whole time and having people travel back and forth and have the usual press moments in, is not going to change anything. I'm not saying it with bitterness. I'm just saying, just if you look at just realistically, that's not going to change the course of of these type of conflicts. So in that respect, people, the crooks, the guys like Anas understood it very, very well because they benefited from that status quo so, so deeply. Uh, so um, I'm somewhat cynical, perhaps I should say, because the gap between the reality on the ground of these conflicts and the public pronouncements of governments, foreign ministers, diplomats, uh, UN officials, and so on, that gap is just so enormous. Uh, and I think it should be addressed. 
Well, Daniel, your your book certainly helps fill that gap, and we really do appreciate your helping us understand the impact of war and and how we how we deal with it. Uh, I can't more highly recommend Proof of Life: Twenty Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. Thank you so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. <laughs>